A Talmudic adage says that before God inflicts a wound, he prepares the remedy. The tragedy of October 7th has left a spiritual scar on Israel and the Jewish people, but not without remedy. Messianic Israeli cellist Liat Saba, inspired by God's call to repentance through Yeshua and the prophets, has been sounding the alarm through her brilliant composition, Wake Up, My Beloved. She joins us today to talk about her faith, her music, and the spiritual battle Israel is waging behind the scenes. Our co-host today is Judy Abrams from the Brahm Center for Messianic Jewish Learning in Jerusalem. Put your hand and mind together We will walk in harmony Let me introduce you to my teacher The rabbi from the Galilee You're listening to Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. Messiah Podcast is a production of First Fruits of Zion. Well, welcome back to Messiah Podcast. Judy's here today from the Brahms Center. Thanks for joining us today, Judy. Thanks. Great to be here. So not too long ago, you're at the Brahms Center and in comes Liat Saba toting a cello and you guys struck up a relationship that culminated in a concert at the Brahms Center that I want to hear more about in just a moment. Uh, But she ended up being such an interesting person that we decided to bring her on the podcast. So welcome, Liat Saba. Thanks. Great to be here. You know, my music theory um, instructor in college was a cellist. And here's what he told me. And and I've told this to other people. And they said that he must have been lying. But he was super old. So this was, um, you know, 20 years ago. And he said that when he was four, he started learning to play the cello and his instructor was super old and he had chosen a piece he wanted to do. And his instructor was like, oh, I premiered this piece with Brahms at the piano. Oh, amazing. So I don't no, know. I'm like four, de- I'm, I'm four degrees removed from Brahms, but that's not very impressive because, you know, pe- people get around. No, I think that's amazing. I come out of music school thinking cello was the best instrument in the orchestra. So I'm a little prejudiced. Yeah, I'm with the best interviewer then. (laughs) (laughs) So actually, you and I met for the first time um, when you had your cello in hand a couple years ago. Right. I was visiting you guys for the Wednesday uh, Torah Club, right? Was it Torah Club or? Well, we had, yes, we had Torah Club on Wednesday. And then I think I saw you, we had a Thursday afternoon lunch and learn. So that's like our, our Hebrew meeting for Parashat the Shavuot. Yeah, right. We learned the Torah portion together and... And Liat came in and I hadn't met her previously. And she is, of course, carrying her like massive cello on her on her back in the case. I'm like, oh, this is fun. <laughs> and then I took it out and you played it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> played. Played is a very subjective word here. Um, yeah, it was it was actually incredible. So after after our class, right, like we we ended up sitting and chatting and and taking a minute. And I, I mean, I don't have much of a musical background, but Liat is the music just spills out of you. I feel like it's almost impossible to to not notice like your passion and your spirit like behind playing this instrument. She like yeah, pulls out this this cello and she's like, "Let's play. Let's improv." And I like have zero musical background. My family's not particularly musical. And she's like, "Let's go." Nice. And I was like, "Let you know what? Let's do it. Let's let's improv here." And just humming notes and she's playing on the cello as if it's nothing, of course, very second nature to her. Liat mentions, maybe we should do an event here at the Brahm Center. And I was just like, done, done, done. Let's make it happen. And there we go. Yes. Start, start of a beautiful yes. friendship. 
Yes, yes. It's a good thing I had my cello with me that day. There you go. It's a good thing. <laughs> Who would have thunk it? You don't just carry it everywhere? <laughs> I mean, that's usually the situation. <laughs> In this case, it was really good. <laughs> I had to take a break. I, it was getting too heavy, you know? This, I'm a small person. Mm. The cello's a big thing. At some point, you're just like, a break already. Maybe I'll switch instruments and start playing the piccolo. Ukulele, <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Just drag that one around. <laughs> yeah. So for, for our listeners who may be joining us for the first time, can you give, just for a minute or two, Talk about what is the Brahms Center and where is it and what's it for, Judy? Yeah, of course. So we have an incredible center here in Jerusalem, the Messianic Jewish Learning Center called the Brahms Center, named after one of our, our luminaries, Avram Poliak and, and First Fruits. In the Brahms Center, we take a, a lot of his understanding of theology and, and move forward with it. And he was just a very inspirational figure who wanted to establish an education center here in Israel and um, was not able to in his lifetime. So we kind of picked up the mantle and we host a, a bunch of classes. The center is amazing. I'm, I'm sitting here now. We host Hebrew speaking classes like this Lunch and Learn that we just talked about. Um, we host a Torah club every week. Uh, we'll have concerts, which was Liat. Liat's concert was our first one that we hosted here. We have holiday parties, uh, just really trying to gather the community together and and study and learn. Of course, education is our focus, and um, we're not a congregation. We're not looking to meet on on Shabbat or anything like that. We really want people to be in their congregations and to enjoy the people that they're around, and then to come to the Brahm Center to study, to focus in, to learn, and just develop their their Messianic faith. So it's a really it's a really incredible space. I'm I'm really blessed to be able to work here and and to host these events. So. There you go. There's the Brahm Center. One of the things that I love about the Brahm Center is first the library. You guys have an incredible library. And you also have old notes, old music s scores of like messianic composers from like the 1930s and 40s. So it's a great wow. archive source as well. Totally. And then I was really impressed because being that you guys are in Jerusalem, the people who come in for these lessons and for the lunch and learn when I was there specifically are super bright individuals. It's really interesting just to sit and discourse with everybody and have that atmosphere for the curiosity of knowledge. I love that. That was really, uh, especially like I was joking with you. I remember I told you, I was like, Oh my gosh, you guys, you Jerusalemites, you're so fast. I came from the Galilee and we're all very slow. <laughs> like we don't really talk so fast. We don't even really think that fast. You have the Galilee, the slow and worshipful vibe, very in, like spiritual. And then you come to Jerusalem and you're like pulling out the Talmud and like a third century church father and, and going at it. It's <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. It's a fun class. I enjoyed being quiet and listening, really. Thank God for our smart brothers and sisters. Yes. And for the different talents that we all bring to the body. Praise God. Hold on, Judy. You mentioned a, a concert a second ago over there at the Brahms Center. I always feel like I'm sort of missing out on on. Uh, what's happening there. But now I feel like I really missed out on something. Tell me about this concert. You did miss out on something, on something awesome. Back in July of this past year, at this point, kind of feels like an eternity ago, but but wasn't so long ago now that I'm thinking about it. Uh, we hosted Liat as well as another good friend, Yaron Cherniak, who's, who's also super talented. And they did this incredible duo concert that completely packed out the Brahm Center. We had like standing room only in the back and all of the chairs were filled. It was really really something else. Um, now the theme and the title of this concert was Wake Up My Beloved. And it, and from, from my understanding from the ad, it has some really incredible kind of background to this piece. So 
But yeah, would you mind sharing a bit about how the creation of this concert and what and what main pieces you incorporated? Yes. The title of the concert, Wake Up My Beloved, is actually a lyric from a song that I wrote earlier that year. It's uh, The song's called Hebrew Symphony. And the lyrics are from the chorus. It goes, wake up, my beloved, look at the times, look at the signs. They're really the lyrics of a prophet speaking to the people saying, Yalla, it's time to turn back to God. Someone had a cell phone there, and we have some in- incredibly low-quality clips of this um, concert. Maybe, maybe we can thread those in here to the podcast. You know, those lyrics are never simple things to hear. Sure. Yeah. They're not like the nice minister, like giving praise. It's no, they're like, no, yeah. you got to get yeah. your heart It's really in your face twist, very quickly. Twist the knife. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I was like, why, Lord? This is such a hard topic, such a hard job to do. He said, no, but you must do it. Plus, you know, you have the cello so you can soften out the, the, the message a little bit. Oh, with yeah. That. Everything sounds but, nice um, around the cello. <laughs> exactly. But I do think that, you know, if the Lord gives those those lyrics and, and the subject matter in a song during these times, then mm. we must acknowledge that this is what he's wanting to say. Right. And I think that now looking back uh, from the perspective of being after a war or rather still in the middle of a war, right. it would have been wonderful had we woken up spiritually at that time. Sure. We might have been more prepared in our hearts to accept what is going on now without the great questions that it has posed on us spiritually since. I think for me, it was really encouraging to do it at the center because it's a group of people who I haven't met before, as well as the collaboration with Yaron, who was bringing all those ethnic instruments and really coloring it with an Israeli setting. Through different pieces that I composed and that Yaron composed, we mixed our compositions together to to explore the different aspects of what we go through in this wake-up call. Mm. One of the songs that we did was Left to Hole, which is from Psalm 51, really deals with our sin, who we are, how do we purify our hearts to come back to God. Yeah. Um, another one was the Hebrew Symphony, which is the, the wake-up call, and you'll hear in the music that it really sounds like a fast-paced train, like, wake up, wake up, wake mm. up, like this. Yeah, yeah. Come on, soul, get it together. Your job is to praise God. Like, what are you doing? The Hebrew Symphony, actually, I recorded with a group that I created called the Galilee Ensemble. So that's on YouTube, and you can hear it in its full orchestral format. Okay. And um, now for the new album coming up, I'll be re-recording it in a Middle Eastern rock version, probably. It suits the message. Wake up! (laughs)
like, you know, Yaron specializes in Eastern music. I think he's doing his doctorate now in Persian music. So all of the instruments that he was bringing to the concert gave that what we are calling today an Israeli flavor because we as Israelis are coming from all these different backgrounds where these music these music styles have influenced us. But when in creating this new style, which is called Israeli music, we need a combination of the West, which is sort of my language, uh-huh. with the East, which has really his language. And I think that's what really brought this message into a relevant message for Israelis or for... Jewish people or for maybe you can even say Semites in general. It's the sound. It's the sound that they're used to. Um, Mm. But I just, I wanted to tell you, Judy, that I've seen quite a lot of people who have been at that concert since, and they continue to tell me. Wow. um, Until, until today, until recently, that was an incredible event, incredibly evening. It really touched my heart on a deep level. I love that. It's exciting to see that the, these different events come together and bring bring different members of the community together and just pull different aspects of, of society, whether it's um, Christians visiting Israel or Messianic Jews or people who don't yet know Yeshua or follow him, that we also had a few of those who were there as well. And it's, yeah, you never know what this prophet, like this prophetic type of, of music is going to bring and what it's going to bring out in people, which is pretty incredible. And during now during the concert too, you played both the cello and the piano. So I kind of want to rewind a little bit and ask you kind of from the beginning, how did you get into the world of music? Of course, this is your profession now, but but how did you enter this space? What were some of your your early experiences? So actually, I come from a musical family. Um, my mom played the violin as a child and her father, he was really a tailor from Poland, but he loved music okay. as well. And he used their home in the 1950s in Ramle, Israel, to open up a music school. Wow. So I think music education has always been a very strong thing in our family, at least. And when I was five, my brother was three and a half. My mom took us down to a local music school and we went to a concert of the student orchestra. She said that I was very shy as a kid, so I didn't really voice my opinion. But she said, would you like to play the cello? And I said, Okay. (laughs) No idea. (laughs) So that was the first experience with music in general speaking. And music was always, my mom always says like this, and I'll do it with her accent. It's not a democracy. You will play music in this house until you are 18. (laughs) And then after you can choose what you want. (laughs) It was like that. It was hard. I mean, I think playing, playing a string instrument is very challenging. You know, um, uh-huh. especially when you ain't got no frets. That is true. Intonation is a real bummer. You have to know exactly where to put those fingers. Yes. I spent many, many hours in front of a tuner going, mm-hmm. trying to find exactly the pitch of where my finger needs to be. And then you have to remember it too. So there's a discourse yeah. with your finger saying, you remember that spot? Go there all the time. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Muscle memory. You have to build in, right? Yeah. Muscle memory, also confidence, also there's a lot of things I think involved in training for music, which is they're wonderful skills for later on. But I didn't see it like that as a child. It was mostly suffering, I would say, until I was 14. (laughs) Suffering suffering as a child. So for for all of you uh, people out there who are looking at maybe being professional musicians, that's, that's the learning curve. 10 years of suffering 
and then maybe something happens. Maybe I'm maybe I'm more sensitive. I'm sure there are people who enjoyed the experience. <laughs> I think also. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think there was also a spirit of excellency at the house. You know, you had to always. Sure. We had concerts to play and all these things. There was always kind of stress yeah. around the subject, and we yeah. had to practice. I mean, there wasn't. We weren't allowed not to practice. But luckily, I had a breakthrough when I was in fourteen. It was right before I started high school. I was living in New York, where I was born and raised, and that summer,、uh, my parents sent me to a music camp in Switzerland. Wow! And at that music camp, I met a lot of very cool classical musicians. Yeah. And they were all older than me, and they were all very, you know, European and cool, and just like, yeah, we love classical music. This is really part of our lifestyle and our culture. And we were playing chamber music together, and I just enjoyed hanging out with them. I enjoyed playing music. Wow! And that was like the click where I was like, oh, you know what? I think I want to be a professional musician. I'm gonna go for it. It's beautiful. It was wonderful. I was very excited. I came back to New York, and I really、uh, pressed the gas. I started practicing a lot. I started doing competitions. I even、mm. dropped out of high school. I went. I did homeschooling so that I could practice and like、wow. do、wow. master classes with different professors from around the world. Like it's kind of like being a pro sports person at a young age. Yeah, yeah it's the same kind of life. I think also with music, it's like by the time you get to eighteen, you need to be kind of towards the top of your game. Wow, for classical music, for、so、classical music, not for other styles. Yeah, for folk music, no. Folk music is about the development of character.、Really? Classical、yeah. music is about the development of skill and an understanding of style. I went on to study music in university. I, was, I studied in London at the Guildhall, and then afterwards at Manhattan School of Music. I did a degree, so I was very, very focused on cello performance. But there was、mm. other things that were going on in the background that started to shape、um, my musical taste for what I'm doing today. Like, for example, when I was 13, my dad for the first time put on a record of Um Kalthum, who was The legendary singer from Egypt in the 1960s and 70s. I mean, she had、wow. like a cult following, and each song that she would sing was about 50 minutes long. So it was、wow. like listening to a symphony, but like an Arab symphony. And、hmm. I, I looked at my dad, and I was like, "How is it that you've never played this to me before? This is incredible music!、Huh. Like all I heard was." Symphonic music from the West and your Beatles and Beach Boys and the stuff that you like, but like,、Quarks. where has this been?、Hmm. Now, <laughs> this started an obsession with Arabic music. Some, even some of my friends in high school were Arabs.、So、we used to listen to like Egyptian music and other like Lebanese music and all sorts of. That's where we got into the Bulgarian also folk and Turkish music. We were just. Oh, I love Bulgarian folk music. I love Bulgarian folk music. It's very spiritual, also, and I think that I was just listening all the time to that music. So I think one way to learn music that is 
I would say foreign to you is just listening, listening, listening. And then it starts to seep into who you are. Mm. And so by the time I finished university, I realized that I wasn't going to be satisfied going into a typical career that was waiting for me as a classical cellist. I think I remember one experience that I had with one of the cello professors, and he said to me, I was playing the Beethoven cello sonata, the third one in A major. And he's like, do you know that Beethoven here wrote a piano? Why are you playing it forte? Piano is quiet, forte is loud. And I was like, because that's what I feel. Mm. And he's like, but that's not what's written on the page. So I said to myself, I can't do this anymore. I can't just play what's on the page all the time. I have Mm. to be true to how I feel. Right. And then it kind of like broke open as you're realizing like, all this creativity and all this emotion behind the music that you want to play maybe isn't found in like those boxes that are set out for you if you're only only playing what's what's on the page. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And right about that time uh, that I was starting to explore different styles of music and improvising and, and getting out of the classical format of making music was when I started to question whether I wanted to move to Israel. Hmm. Because Israel, I started getting records like albums my mom would go and visit and she'd bring back CDs of different Israeli artists. And I was listening to them combining Western pop sounds with like Middle Eastern instruments. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. (laughs) They've got something really good going on over there. I got to get over there musically. That's going to be a really interesting next step. But what really tipped me over the edge was simultaneously I was starting to uh, look for God to look for who is God and to have a relationship with God. What does that look like? How, in what context kind of were you raised? Was Where did this kind of search for God originate and how did that develop? So, I mean, I'm raised in a traditional Jewish home. We do Shabbat dinner every week and we do all the holidays, kitchen's kosher, you know, basic like galut style, yeah, the diaspora Jew. Hmm. There was always a lot of talk about traditions and holidays and that aspect of Judaism, though we didn't really approach the subject of God too much. As a child, I had a sense that he always existed. I had no doubt because I have memories of myself praying even as a child. Even when I was a teenager, in one of my performances, I I remember praying before and I said, God, please use me to to move people, to touch them. I'm here to, to do your work. I had no background. No one ever told me to even think like this. This was just... Oh, interesting. Now when I hear it, and parents talk to their children like this, to be used by God, let's give our lives for God. But I had never had that concept before. I think one of the scriptures that touches, touched me so much when I first started reading the Bible again was that he, he knows us from our mother's womb. Yeah, mm. he knows exact. He he has almost placed himself already at that time, and then he shows up at all these different moments throughout our lives and says, "I'm here. Uh-huh. I want you. I want relationship with you." After you prayed that prayer, did you feel like there was something? Yeah, I felt. I felt his. his I just felt. I felt the spirit on me. Mm. 
it was it was also a very big moment. It wasn't just any concert. I was playing as a soloist, a cello concerto with an orchestra in the Ukraine. I had prepared this piece for months on end and I was already very right. nervous and with heightened emotions. So I really like at the end of all this preparation and all this devotion of time, I was just like, here, Lord, take it. This is for you now to use. Huh. And I think that's why he also gave me such a powerful experience inside the concert. And he basically said, I accept. I will use this. So that that experience, fast forward about eight years later, I'm in New York and I'm like, New York is a crazy place. People here are very selfish. Mm. People here only care about their own interests and themselves. And this is celebrating the glory of man. And I don't think this is real. And I'm not sure if I really want to build my life here. And that's when I started searching. I went to Asia Torah. I went to Chabad Lubavitch. I was learning with Chavuta and all sorts of different things. And Mm. we had a tour in Florida, and I had some time afterwards to just be quiet. It was three days of walking on the beach, up and down Miami Beach, back and forth, (laughs) asking God, what's the next step for my life? Should I move to Brooklyn or should I move to Israel? (laughs) (laughs) The great Jewish question. (laughs) Brooklyn or Israel? (laughs) It was very clear that Israel was the choice. A couple months later, I packed up my life and I made Aliyah. Wow. And so just taking that time like to start asking these bigger questions about what you want your life to look like was the impetus for, for considering Israel in, in your plans more deeply. It's a deep subject. There are really so many things to discuss when one is considering to move to Israel and to make Aliyah to Israel. And I understand it in retrospect when I was reading Ezekiel 37. I said, wow, that's me. I was like a shell almost until you came and you breathed a a new life into me and you said, come back, come back to your land, come back to the land that I have uh, left for you as your inheritance. And Mm -hmm. really what happened when I came back is that he truly brought me back to life spiritually. What did that look like? I mean, in terms of your development of, of your relationship with God after that? I came to Israel and I moved to Tel Aviv and Tel Aviv reminded me a lot of New York because it's still a very secular lifestyle. Totally. I think that I was spiritually open. And then at that time, I met someone who started speaking to me about the Messiah. Hmm. In what kind of context? Where did that come about? Um, He was very like hell and fire kind of style. It was very much like, we are at the end times. It's really the end. And you really got to get your way set straight with God because otherwise you just have no chance to survive what's coming. And I was like, what's coming? And he's like, let's open the book of Revelation and I'm going to show you. And (laughs) as I was reading it... It's interesting because like some people like come in through the love and stuff like that, but I came in through the end, like <laughs> life is about to get very, very hard. <laughs> and I think, and hence the wake up my beloved, like that's all, that's right. also subconsciously the voice that I always have when I'm talking to people is that, yes, I really, really do believe that we're at, we're at the end. Mm. And the train is running very fast. And if you don't hop on, then you might miss it. Sure, sure. 
And you don't, you don't not want to be on this, on this train. And that was pretty much the message. That's how he started to talk to me about the need, so to say, for a Messiah. Less about sin and more about end times. Very apocalyptic. Very much so. But, but of course, I was very skeptical because having grown up Jewish in the diaspora within a Christian country, you associate Yeshua as the God of the Christians. And right. I was very skeptical towards even believing that, it, that it's possible that it was him. And that it was something that, that works within a Jewish context. That's something that, that is cohesive and coherent. Right. Because the West presents him in a very different light. Yeah, yeah. They, they've got, they got into all the iconography and the holidays that don't really have to do with anything. Plus like a thousand, almost 2000 years of history where, sure. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I said that. the holidays that ha don't have to do with anything. I feel bad about saying that. It's but true. Yeah. Plus I thought we were called to celebrate the feasts that are in the Bible. Like, why are we adding, yeah. adding new things? Can we do this? Are we allowed right. to? What's <laughs> cultural appropriation? Like, should totally. we go with the flow or should we stick to our old roots? Anyways, there was a lot of questions like that that were happening at the beginning because I was just like, who is this guy and why did the West change him so much that we don't even recognize the Jewishness in our own Messiah? Yeah. But but before I was even able to ask these things, I think it was more, more the question was, why did he come two times? And is that really biblical? I said, show me, because I was refuting all all the rest of the prophecies. I was like, Isaiah 51, interpretive. Psalm 2, interpretive. I had an argument for everything. The only thing that I couldn't argue was Daniel, the 70 weeks prophecy, because he says he comes from first time and then he'll be cut off from his people and then he comes back again. So interesting. Mm. He says from the time when the when the second temple has been granted to be rebuilt until this amount of time, when I did the research then, which I don't remember all the numbers right now, but I sat on it for a while and I said, oh my goodness, this is exactly the amount of years until around the birth of Yeshua. It must be him. Hmm. I said, how come we don't know about this? Why don't we know about Daniel? And then they explained to me that Daniel was written in Aramaic and that it's not really studied that much. Hmm. They just don't approach it. Yeah, they they stuck him. They stuck him into the ketuvim, didn't they? They stuck him into the ketuvim and said, uh, uh, "There it goes into the into the writings instead of into the prophets." There was a whole bunch of things that I had to undo from my education as to who, first of all, who Yeshua was and who he is, Twitter. and also all the historical difficulties that happened with anti-Semitism and right. the replacement theology towards Israel. So that whole process took about two years of, I pretty much locked myself away from society and researched because wow. I thought to myself, this is just too crazy. No one's ever going to believe me. I and and it's the end of the world. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. So like you're I don't know problem. who I can talk to anymore. <laughs> and it's I mean it's pretty amazing that you allowed yourself to explore this, right? That your heart was was open, maybe even from this experience as a teenager, to to explore God in a way that challenged so much so much of what you grew up with. As a child and for my whole life, and this is also the reason why I moved to Israel. I mean, why I was 
considering New York as a place that wasn't appropriate anymore for me, is because of God's righteousness, because I was always seeking after that. I said, if God is is the creator and he is great and everything is under his control, then there has to be some sense of universal justice and righteousness. I right. want to see that things are set right. Yeah, yeah, uh, the cosmic scale's got to be rebalanced here. I think this is why I really enjoyed getting to know Yeshua at the time, although unfortunately it was kind of in the shadow also of a lot of fear towards the end. So that changed later on as as I joined Akela and started really learning more of the scriptures and learning, learning, just learning, you know, getting getting my theology correct. Balance out some of the doomsday with, with some grace and, and some love and peace behind it too. <laughs> That's exactly it. The love of God. That that is the whole thing. That's what he's been saying since the very beginning. I love you so much. I always wanted to be with you, so close to you. Can't you see this from Genesis 2? You see, you were with me. We were like this. We were buds. Uh And that's where I want to take you back. Now, have you seen that this kind of process has affected your music as well? Absolutely. I think whereas I was thinking... What should I do with my music? Because there was always a sense that music should be an offering. Mm. But what do I do? I had that question for many years. And as I started to get more comfortable with my identity as being a believer in God, Uh I started to also become more comfortable in my identity as being one who stands for the truth and for his word. Wow. And that this is ultimately the most important thing. And this is why art has been given to us, that we may show his face, show his heart, show his message. Yeah. It gave a lot of purpose to to my life. Like I said, before I was a competitive cello player in classical music, and that's where I was really honing in on the skill of being able to play and getting all this knowledge about music. But ultimately, for being a, a true, I think a real musician is the placement of the heart. It's like this worshipful stance as opposed to maybe something a bit more proud center stage. The glory of man versus the glory of God. And, I, and again, I think there is a place that music can express how we feel in our, in our very human expressions. Mm-hmm. And, but I think that ultimately when we're, when we're taking that kind of a message, we always want to bring it back to what do we do with that? Right. Do you just leave it at that place? Okay, I'm heartbroken. Or I, I look to you from where will come my help. Yeah. told me the story a little bit about how you got into playing harp and I think that that's such an incredible instrument and it sounds like it sort of comes from this place of of a worshipful stance I would love it if you could expand a bit upon upon getting into harp and and what that's looked like for you sure um I was teaching at a music school 
And one of the teachers there was also a believer. She was a piano teacher. And she said, I meet up with this group of harpists on the Mount of Olives once a month. Would you like to come? <laughs> and I was like, where's the Mount of Olives? She's like, oh, that's on the Arab side of Jerusalem. I was like, are you kidding? <laughs> She's like, no, no, don't worry. They're wonderful. They're, it's really a special thing. And I was very nervous. I'd never been to East Jerusalem before. But I said, okay, fine, I'll come with you. So I get to this house of prayer on the top of the Mount of Olives, which we drove through a very sketchy Arab neighborhood to get to. Of course. We go upstairs to the prayer tower, which is all surrounded with glass and a glass ceiling. And it's a, it's it, the prayer tower is shaped like a circle. <laughs> so it's a group, literally a group of people sitting down in a circle with harps singing worship to God for like four hours. Wow. And I was like, what is this? I've never, I didn't, I, that was more also towards the beginning of my faith journey. So I wasn't aware of 27, 24-7 prayer houses. I didn't understand yeah, even the priesthood that much. I, I had no idea. I was yeah. very much a noob. I was coming to it from like the music perspective, but suddenly there's this whole like spiritual depth that comes when you hear the harp. This harp program developed and many other people joined. And the woman who runs it is Kate Hess, who her with her husband run the prayer house. And she's just devoted literally like the last 12 years to training up Israeli harpists, worshipers, as well as the international community. Like part of their focus has also been Isaiah 19 Highway. So getting all the Arab nations, learning how to play the harps. Wow. And so we've had some very, very special experiences together. And I started to experience, I guess you could say, the sound of the throne room, which is very, very, very high. You know, it says that the at the throne of God, the 24 elders, they play their harps. Uh-huh. So you're, you're here and you're surrounded just with harp music. It's like a full surround sound experience. You're completely engulfed in this harpness, this like holy sound. And that's exactly what they were aiming for. They always said, let's do groups of 12, let's do groups of 24. So we would meet groups of 24. And then <laughs> we multiplied. And two years ago, we did 144. Wow. Wow. And this year, we did over 200 players from the entire world. Are we talking about this big, you know, Harpo Marks, like gigantic piece of furniture you're lugging 144 of those to the mount of olives so not quite it's actually the celtic harps oh about okay. 20 well, to 26 strings clarify things okay yeah yeah <laughs> you sit it on your lap it's it's very like it's like it's it's easy going okay. i was thinking you're yeah. gonna run out of room, room on the mountain pretty soon here but uh, this is <laughs> wow what an incredible experience and and just being able to kind of engage in that group and and kind of have like your 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 journey of becoming a, a disciple of, of Yeshua parallel with your learning of kind of this heavenly instrument. That, that's a really beautiful space to be in. 
it's through the music that I learned about him because I understood then, okay, why do we sing worship songs? Okay. One of them is to give glory to God. The second is so that we can also learn the scriptures by heart. Yeah. Third is that when our, when, when the sound is vibrating within us, everything calms down and we also learn how to trust and be in peace and shalom with God. It's all the things that he's always talking about through the scriptures. So music was like my theology teacher. So we know that, right? Like in February, this past year, at the beginning of 2023, there was this massive earthquake that struck, I think it was Southern and Central Turkey, really. And there was tens of thousands of people who were killed and, and millions left homeless. And there were so many countries that sent medical help and and search and rescue teams. And actually my unit in the army also sent like a rescue team to, to save people there. And you saw the, the pain and suffering that these people were going through. And you were like, let's go. And, and you hopped on a plane and, and headed to Turkey, right? Is that yeah, I mean, actually, I had been there a day and a half before the earthquake happened. Oh, wow. No, yeah, I was at a conference for the Isaiah 19 Highway in Istanbul. Huh. And all the lovely people who I had met were Turkish. They really had a place in my heart. I mean, we spent some wonderful times together. And a day and a half later, the earthquake hit, and immediately I jumped on to WhatsApp with them, asked, of course, is everyone okay? Everyone was gearing up to go out and help. What they were doing mostly was the food kitchens, the mobile food kitchens, right. and delivering food supplies and things like that. Just So they uh, assigned me to a food kitchen um, in a place called Elbistan. And I joined a team of, of Turks from the church, uh, from all the churches throughout the country. They had pulled together teams. Mm -hmm. And for the next week and a half, we cooked meals, distributed food, um, and I brought my harp with me because I said, well, oh, nice. if it soothes Saul, then it should soothe them too. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I said, it's the only thing I know how to do. I mean, I, I, everyone can cook, but not everyone can play the harp. So I'll, I'll bring that well, with me. Not, a, not everyone can cook. <laughs> it's a strong assumption there. <laughs> I mean, I, I can cook, but I know, I know some people who cannot cook. <laughs> Food and music are great unifiers, by the way. Yeah. What else could you ask for? Absolutely. What else can you ask for? You'll see that when people sit down for a meal, they're all very peaceful. But uh, I was very glad that I went. It was uh, it was very crazy. I mean, you know, like I, I saw everything was pretty much destroyed. Everything. Everybody was sleeping yeah. in tents. It was just it was just a very big disaster, very big. But the harp was amazing. The harp, you know, in general speaking, I, I would say that I'm kind of shy. I'm a, and definitely shy in foreign countries when talking to new people who I don't speak Turkish with and who don't speak English. Right. <laughs> when I took out the harp, suddenly you see like, wow, smiles and people are at peace and they just sit down. They come and sit down next to you and listen. And then luckily a couple of the guys on the team did speak English. So I was able to talk to the people through their translation and said, I'd like to play for you a song that's written um by King David, I would always sing, Hamelik Daoud. And they're like, ah, Daoud, Daoud. I was like, yeah, Melik Daoud from Mezmur. Mezmur is, is uh, Psalms for them. And so mm -hmm. then they would sit back and they would listen. And I would play for them different different worship songs. Then one of the 
Turkish guys on the team would read them the text. Of course, when I played them the harp music, it was just, I know what harp does. I know what it did for me. I know what it's done for others. I know what it means to have music in the midst of disaster. I know myself. I've often used music to heal my own broken soul. So I, I believe that the words and the music and the intention did its job. Have you guys visited Turkey before? Oh, yeah. I lived there for like a year. Where did you live? I lived in Ankara, in Hoşdere Kadesi, just uh, like a mile or two south of Ataturk's mausoleum. Oh, wow. It was uh, wild. Yeah, and this was back in the 90s. So um, and my mom was working in security for the airbase that's not there anymore. And it was probably the only really dangerous place I lived, but the food was just amazing. I can I was like seven years old. I still remember the food. I remember the the lamb in Turkey more clearly than I remember getting baptized in the Jordan River when I was the same age. Like that was, it was one of the best, like top five meals I've ever had in my life. It's the Middle Eastern food, man. Listen, you can't beat it. You know, I've been back many times to Turkey since. Oh yeah. They really, uh, they've been really in my heart. I, I love it. Recently I was there right before the war to do a night of Hebrew worship for a big conference, I taught some of the Turkish musicians how to sing in Hebrew. Wow. wow. So they were singing, Shabbi Yerushalayim, like this one, that. Et Adonai. <laughs> wonderful. That's incredible. It was wonderful. Very, very touching. They loved it. They loved singing in Hebrew. <laughs> and, and we also did Shabbat together. They loved doing Shabbat. They're like, we should do Shabbat every week. So blessed. Yeah. You're like, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> so one of my friends, she does Shabbat now every week with her husband. Wow. So special. She's like, I understand the blessing of God in Shabbat. And hmm. I was like, I'm telling you, girl, <laughs> come back to your roots. What a, what a special um, connection. It sounds like specifically Turkey, there's, there's a lot of, of maybe heart ties that you have there, both kind of with the music and with this Arabic music that inspired your some of your early shifts in, in your own music and, and now moving forward, not just with humanitarian aid during an earthquake, but also continuing your connections with your friends there and keeping worship as kind of a common language. Definitely. I mean, as a result, I learned Turkish worship songs and they're learning Hebrew worship songs. And who knows what project is waiting from that? Totally. Like, wouldn't it be so cool to have some worship music recorded that's in Turkish and Hebrew? So to say enemy nations that are worshiping the Lord together on the highway of God. Yeah. I mean, there's there's more things to be done. We ain't mm-hmm. done yet. A lot of power, <laughs> a lot of power in that unity that that really is brought both by both by the lamb of Turkey and by, and by the music that, that can flow out of it in, in Arabic, Hebrew, Turkish, and in, in all of these languages, like you're saying, it's pretty impressive. Certainly. I really think it is the heart of God to have his name be worshiped in the language of the Middle East together. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This is the restoration that needs to happen between the broken relationship of brothers. Yeah. Yeah, especially when languages and culture uh, speak so differently at each other. You have music that kind of comes in and, and 
and speaks with us, right? Like that, that kind of is, is part of that. So you talked about that broken relationship between brothers. And I think, um, you know, it's hard to think of uh, anything else lately than that broken relationship as there's this renewed conflict since, since October 7th. And, um, you know, everyone who's come onto the podcast since then has had thoughts and feelings. And, um, you know, as a musician, your work, your music, your outpouring to God is certainly colored and informed by feelings. And um, at least, you know, as a musician, that's how it works for me. So I wondered just, just so where have you been since October 7th, not geographically, but in your spirit and, and um, has it affected your, your music and how do you feel and what do you think about all, all of it? I mean, with the nation, I was in shock mourning for the first month. Mm-hmm. It was the worst event that we have ever experienced here by far. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, Israeli society is so close knit and you know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. And so anybody's pain and everybody's pain is your pain. I think that's something that we always feel in every war. When a soldier goes down, we all mourn for him. It's not just his family and it's not removed from us. You know, it's a small country. Right. And we're all very close together. And I think also the fact that, you know, we are a small country and we're carrying this Jewish identity. We we feel even more affinity towards our brothers and sisters here because mm-hmm. we each have that burden of being here and standing for the right to exist and for the right uh, to have a country. I'm very sensitive to certain crimes, especially rape. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hate that. I hate it. It just it's, it makes me so angry. Yeah. I don't like that this is part of our world at all. And what happened at that concert was terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was cruel. And also what happened then later on in Mary and I couldn't stomach it. Like about two weeks ago, they really started uh, campaigning again towards all the women's rights organizations. Why isn't anyone saying anything? This is what happened. Hello? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think another another big shocker that happened was the response that we got on social media. I mean, people were expressing how much they hate us and how much we deserve this and how much Israel doesn't have the right to exist and free Palestine and all this propaganda messages that I, I'm sure that most people don't even understand. What river, what sea, you ask? Right. I don't know. And so one of the things that I was, I was personally dealing with was our identity as a people and as a nation. I was thinking about that a lot. Like, why do we have the right to exist? What are we defending? And and of course, I know these things. Yeah, I know the scriptures. But I guess in the light of other people criticizing it, it really made me think about it. Right in the first week of the war, it started Saturday. And that Friday already, I got a song called Thoughts of Peace. I was praying. And right in front of me on my Bible, my bookmark has the passage from Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. This I think for you, says the Lord. 
And I was like, yeah, you said that. You said that to me. You said that to us. You say this to us. This is a word that stands. And uh, it was very encouraging to me. And as I was reading it, already I had the melody also. And I was like, oh, this is so sweet. Oh, God, you are so sweet. Even in the midst of all this terribleness, your voice is so sweet. So I sat down on the piano and then I was like, and then immediately, I was like, oh no, I got to run to the, to the shelter. The sirens run off. We were getting bombed up. And I was like, grab the phone. So at least you can record the melody. This is a musicians. They're very afraid to lose the melody. So you always quickly record into your phone and then I'll get it later. I'll get it later. Luckily, it didn't last for too long. Everything was okay. I went back into the apartment and I sat down at the piano and started playing this new song. And then I I said, okay, it's missing a second part. What am I going to write about? And I put a poll out to a couple friends of mine. And I said, hey, shoot some scriptures over. And one of them was First uh, Peter 2, 9. I said, yes, that's who we are. Yes, Lord, that's who we are. That's what you think of us. You think that we are a chosen people. We are also your your royal royal priesthood. Mm-hmm. We are clothed in garments of royalty, and we are here to serve you. That's our identity as a nation, a holy nation, a holy nation. This land is holy. Also, you've given it to your royal priesthood to watch over this holy land, so that it would be there for us to sing praises to you, to illuminate the light in the darkness. And I was like, oh, that's exactly the message that I needed to hear. And I'm imagining probably a lot of other people. So quickly, I ran to the studio with my dear friend, Jamie Hilsden, who's produced a lot of beautiful albums, including leading the band Mikedim. Mm-hmm. Mm. Thank God I was here in Tel Aviv and he was here in Tel Aviv so we could work together on the song. We quickly recorded it. I quickly also filmed the video. What I love about it is that it features um, archival material of Israel from the 1930s and 40s. So it's really, it's like, it's drawing like from sort of the time, like from past to present, you know, or, and really the, the legitimacy that we have to continue being in this land and to mm-hmm. continue to be the caretakers over God's holy nation. Ironically, not ironically, right? Like a siren going off in the middle of, of you trying to <laughs> trying to write the song about thoughts of peace. I feel like that's something that is so lacking during this time amidst Israelis. It's if it's not fear, it's trying to muster up enough courage to serve in the military. If it's not that, it's it's mourning people who have passed and and in, in the war or or on October seventh. And you just you have everything but peace, right? You have everything but this sense of like calmness and quiet and and security, really. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think everybody lost their peace, including myself. 
Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. even even uh, the strongest believers are asking serious existence questions. Yeah. Or even questions towards God, like how could you do this to us? Like what did right. we do to deserve this? How could we how could you how how how? And I don't think it it doesn't come from a, this it doesn't come from like a lack of faith. It doesn't come from being weak believers. It comes from this place of of truly experiencing severe trauma and kind of our whole national identity flashes back very quickly to the Holocaust, which most of our grandparents were in. And it's just, it, it kind of throws you into the space of a little bit of chaos and, and kind of trauma response in a way. And so to, to calm the spirit with this, with this sense of music is um, much needed, much needed. Absolutely. We, we, we need to remember, we need to remember through all of this confusion. And this is the same story with Job. I mean, he says he he understands in the end that he doesn't understand anything about anything. Right. <laughs> right. After all those chapters. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the whole discourse. Right. And they're all like mighty men of intelligence. Oh, could be this. Could be that. Could be this. Could be that. And that's and that. And those are the voices that get echoed in social media. Maybe you did this. Maybe you did that. But maybe you're not really righteous. Maybe you're like this. And you're like, hold on a second. Does God hate me? Does God hate us? Has God forsaken us? No. But we just don't understand. We have to also come back to that. And which is why I love the passage of Jeremiah, because he speaks to us in a very direct way. He's not saying, I know the thoughts that I have for Israel. He says, I know the thoughts I have for you. Hmm. You, you individual. Listen to me. I have thoughts of peace for you. That's why it's the first part of the song. Second part of the song is you as a nation. It's you, the corporal. But first, it's you, you, the individual, because he calls us out by name. He knows us from our mother's womb. We need to have that intimacy with him when there's been such a shaking of, of our, our, our understanding of how God views us in light of what happened. Right. We need him to speak directly to us. Answer me, answer me. Well, you mentioned that new new song, Thoughts of Peace, that you recorded in the music video. I'm sure people want to hear that and people want to um, you know, hear your music and buy your albums and go see you in concert and follow you on social media. How can people keep track of your career and, and, and support your, your music career and ministry? Uh, so I'm on the social media platforms, uh, Liat Saba on Facebook and Instagram and also YouTube. And on my Facebook and Instagram, I post all the upcoming concerts, links to videos, links to Spotify as well, of course. And if people really want to get direct information, they can always sign up to the mailing list that goes out about once every two months. Try not to be too annoying, but once in <laughs> every two months, there's enough to, <laughs> what to update. And so that can be accessed through a link on my Instagram. Okay. There's a sign up there. For those of you who don't want to try to guess at how to spell Liat's name, we will put all those links in the description of the podcast here. Well, thanks so much, Judy, from the Brahm Center and Liat uh, for joining us today on Messiah Podcast. It was great to hear more um, about the Brahm Center. It was really nice to hear about your musical ministry and, and to hear some of your songs. And we're excited to see where you take it, where God has uh, what God has for you in the future. Yeah, most definitely. And I just want to thank you personally too, Liat, from from us here at the Brahm Center for the incredible concert that that you did this past year. And we just 
look forward to doing more collaborations together. And and for all of you guys listening, hopefully this this next concert, if we can get it planned for 2024, we'll we'll try to live stream it. So you won't miss out like Jacob did on on this last one. <laughs> yeah, invite me next time. Yeah, yeah, I gotta Would get you? The, we'll make sure we'll make sure to pack out the place again. So so standing room only. We'll save you a spot back there. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Judy. Thank you, Jacob. I really enjoyed talking to both of you. It's wonderful how modern technology can connect us from all different parts of the world. Amen. And different time zones, even. <laughs> A cello player, all we understand is wood. We don't know this technology. <laughs> it worked out. It worked out. Thank God. <laughs> thanks so much, Thank Leah. God. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us today on Messiah Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the Jewish Jesus, check out First Fruits of Zion at ffoz.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating wherever you're listening. Messiah Podcast is made possible by the generosity of our First Fruits of Zion friends. FFOZ friends are people like you who support our mission and get loads of exclusive Bible commentary, teaching, and content. You can join today at ffoz.org. Tune in next time for more great conversations. Until then, I'm Jacob Franzak. Shalom. Like the waters cover the sea